how in the world is that possible? It's because Christ himself dwells in us through his own spirit, and our spirit is alive because of his righteousness. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. All right, well, how about we stand together for the reading of God's Word in Romans 7. Turn to Romans 7. And we are going to be reading verses 7 through 25 this morning. 7 through 25. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning, and we ask that it would guide and direct us. Holy Spirit, that you would teach us this morning as we go through this passage, that you would protect us from error, me specifically, Lord, as I teach your word, protect me from saying anything that would be contrary to your word. And I ask that uh, because your word is true, that this truth would permeate our hearts and minds, it would change us, would conform us to your image, and that we would grow in our understanding of the law, the sin, and what that means for us as believers. And it's Jesus' matchless name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. And let's be praying and thinking of Pastor Pilgrim and Jen and the family as well while they're on vacation. 
Uh, they're driving. They've been driving across the U.S. out to California, seeing a lot of fun and cool things on the way. So I'm sure they're having a good time. Um, but as we begin this morning, let's be reminded that this is the very word of God that we hold in our hands. God created us and he created the universe. And as creator, he has the authority to mold his creation for his purposes. He has not stayed silent. He has communicated to us. He has given us his word. And his word has authority for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We know that his word is sufficient, meaning that we have everything we need for life and godliness. We know that his word is inerrant and infallible. That means that it's absolutely true and totally trustworthy. And we know that the word of God is active it's powerful, it's living, it's cleansing, it's nourishing, and it's sanctifying. So may we, this morning, come to God's word very seriously, with reverence, and may he direct our lives as we look at law, sin, and the believer this morning. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Pilgrim, Dean Beasley, and myself, we were talking about the work ethic in America and how hard work has been part of the backbone of our country and how we've seen success in some measure because of this. But now we are seeing that erode and erode very quickly. And as you drive down the road, it's very apparent as every store and every restaurant almost is hiring, 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 can't find anybody, can't find anybody, can't find anybody. And we spent some time talking about how that work has been instituted by God and we do it for his glory and how we as believers, we have an opportunity um, to stand outside the crowd, to stand against the, uh, the complaining that happens uh, because it's, it's in every workplace, isn't it? There's no workplace that's immune to this. It's either a mindset of, I'm just working for the weekend. I'm doing whatever I can just to get to Saturday and Sunday so I can have some days for myself. Or it's complaining against the boss. It's complaining against the hours. It's complaining against the type of work that is going on. We see this. But, like I said, we as believers, we have an opportunity to not be like that, to stand true, to be a witness in this area. And so are we taking advantage of it? And I say this this morning not to really comment so much on the work ethic in America, um, but because we have some hard work to do. And of course, it's not physical work this morning, but we have the hard work of studying God's word. And we have the privilege to continue in Romans 7. But there is a temptation, in a sense, to work towards the weekend of Romans 8, where we come to familiar verses that we know and love. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We love that. We want to get there. Sometimes a temptation might be to bypass uh, some of the difficulty in Romans 7. But to do that would be to ignore a vital chapter on our sanctification, to skip a crucial explanation of God's law and rob our triune God of worship that is due his name as we move through our Christian life. We do not skip over chapters because they are difficult to understand or because they make us feel uncomfortable. No, we dig in all the more and we ask the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and give us understanding to understand the truth of his word. And so in the next two sermons, God's word is going to guide us in some of these big questions of our Christian life and sin and our walk with the Lord. And so I encourage you to be listening intently this morning. 
Take notes if you would like. And then outside of this, read other solid commentaries. Listen to other solid sermons on this chapter so it can grow your understanding. The whole book of Romans has been such an encouragement and foundational for my walk with the Lord. And I'm sure it has been and will continue to be for you as well. The title of the sermon, I've already said, is Law, Sin, and the Believer. And today's going to be part one. Uh, And in two weeks, we're going to have part two. As I was studying this, I considered preaching through all of these verses in one sermon. But there is so much here for us to understand, so much for us to learn that speaks to our Christian life that I thought it would be prudent to split it up. Uh, So today we're going to look at verses 7 through 13, and then in two weeks, on July 11th, we are going to finish the chapter. Remember, in the context of the whole book of Romans, we are in the middle of Paul's explanation on sanctification, of growing in holiness and being set apart for his glory. We started in chapter 1 with the theme of condemnation, that all mankind is under the wrath and curse of God. In chapters 1 through the first half of chapter 3, we dealt with condemnation. As we came into the second half of chapter 3, we started learning about justification and the glorious truth that we are declared righteous. And Paul spent through chapter 5 to discuss that. And then chapter 6, we see its transition into the area of sanctification, and we will continue this uh, through chapter 8. If you would like to take notes this morning, we're going to be moving through these verses in the following ways. Uh, First, we're going to see that Paul asks two important questions. Two important questions. Is the law sin and does the law bring death? And these, uh, the answers to these questions will be clearly shown to us in the text. But then we're going to see four aspects of the law and sin. We're going to see that the law reveals sin. We're going to see it provokes sin. We're going to see the law crushes the sinner, and then we'll see that the law shows the sinfulness of sin or the wretchedness of sin. Many commentators have said the sinfulness of sin. So let's look at verse 7 together. First uh, couple sentences, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? We'll just stop there. Paul here, he's referring back to the beginning of chapter 7, when he clearly said in verse 4 that we have died to the law and that we are released from the law in verse 6. And he's answering a question that would have popped into the head of a Jewish believer who's thinking, well, Paul, wait a minute, Um, just a moment, you, you said that the law arouses our sinful passions. So does that mean that the law is sin? And this would be another revelation to the Jewish mind's understanding of the law. Paul had already shown in chapters 3 through 5 that the law cannot save. In chapter 6, he showed that the law cannot sanctify. But now in chapter 7, he shows us what the law can do, what it can do. It convicts both the unbeliever and the believer of sin. If we look at Judaism back uh, at the time of Jesus... Judaism had been warped into a legalistic system that Peter described in Acts 15 as a yoke that neither our fathers nor we are able to bear. You can imagine, of course, that that picture of the yoke on the oxen, except we're not able to walk. It's crushing us down to the ground and we can't even move. It's that heavy. That's what Peter is describing. The law is that yoke that our fathers in the Old Testament nor we are able to bear. 
The Jewish law at that time consisted of 613 commandments broken down into 248 mandates and 365 prohibitions. So if we were using our calendar, that would be a prohibition for every single day of the year. Um, Everything from temple worship, vows, rituals, Sabbaths, animals, festivals, war, social issues, idolatry, historical lessons, the list goes on and on and on and on. But when we look back into the Old Testament, when the law was given, we can understand the seriousness of faithful Jews who did desire to obey God's law. Turn with me back to the Old Testament. Turn to Deuteronomy with me. We're going to look at a couple verses here. Deuteronomy 28. Of course, we know that the book of Deuteronomy is the last of the five books of Moses, the Torah. And in the first half of chapter 28, we see blessings for obedience. So if you love me and if you obey my commandments, these are the blessings that will come. But as we come to verse 15, we see curses for disobedience. So look at verse 15 with me if you're there. Deuteronomy 28. The Lord says through Moses, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration and all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation, and fiery heat, and with drought, and with blight, and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. Wow. What an indictment of what would happen. What a prediction of what would happen if the Jews did not love the Lord and did not obey his law. And unfortunately, we did see that come to pass. But when we look at this, we can understand then where the Jewish mind is coming from, how difficult it would be to gain a new understanding of the law's requirement and how it has been filled through the perfect law keeper of Jesus Christ. And you may be thinking to yourself this morning, well, why in the world did God give his people a standard that they could ever live up to, that it was impossible to keep? Well, he gave it to show his divine standard of righteousness, of how we are to live, but also That's the point, to also show the impossibility of living up to that standard. Of course, without his power, without his power. And he also gave it to show the depth of our sin when we honestly hold it up to the standard of the law. A local pastor, there's a local pastor here in Sarasota. His name's Russ Atmore. He's the pastor of Bethel Community Church. And I had the privilege of listening to his sermon on this passage as I was studying. And this is how he defined the law. He said, the law is designed to restrain evil, protect the righteous, to exemplify and magnify the character of God because it is a display morally of who he is and what he is like. To disregard the law, in essence, is to slight who God is and to perhaps disregard God. Very serious. For those who say, get rid of the law, we're not under law, we're not under law. Well, the law shows us who God is. We do not throw that away because if we do, we throw out who God is. 
And so when we look at the situation during the time of Jesus and back into the Old Testament, we can catch a glimpse into the mind of the Jewish objector to Paul's teaching. But thankfully, Paul answers this question, is the law sin? In verse 1, so clearly, let's say it together. By no means. Exactly. Exactly right. It's the exact opposite, actually. The, the problem is not with the law. It's with us in our sin and in our flesh. And we'll see this as we go through. But it's here where we see the first of the four aspects of law and sin. The law reveals sin. Reveals sin. Look at the rest of verse 7. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So the law shows us God's divine standard. And as we compare ourselves to that standard, this allows us to accurately identify sin, which, of course, is the failure to meet that standard. And you'll notice that it's here and it's through the rest of the chapter that Paul switches pronouns and he starts using personal pronouns, I and me, through the rest of the chapter to show us his experience uh, as well as teach universal truth. And we'll talk about this a little bit more uh, in verses 14 through 25. But there's been a debate over the years about who is this passage describing. Is it describing a Christian? Is it describing a non-Christian? Is it Israel under the Mosaic law? Is it some sort of transitional period? Well, I believe that our text shows us that in verse 7 through 12, we're seeing Paul describe the work of the Holy Spirit and how he opens our eyes to the conviction of sin when held under the lens of God's law. And it's that moment of regeneration that Paul is describing here. When we truly understand Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When we truly understand that, and how do we come to this understanding? Well, that's what Paul is describing here. And he's describing it from his own personal conversion. Because Paul says, I wouldn't have known sin if it wasn't for the law. And Paul had already talked about this a couple times in the book of Romans. In Romans 3.20, he says, through the law comes knowledge of sin. In Romans 4.15, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. In Romans 5.13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. And something to take note of here is that Paul is not referring here to just a general understanding of right and wrong. Every person is born with this knowledge. In fact, in Romans 2, Paul said that even the pagan Gentiles have God's law written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And we know that. We are born with a conscience. That is a gift that God has given us. We know instinctively what is right and what is wrong. And although we try and sear that conscience, we try and suppress that pretty much as soon as we are born. And we are successful at it. We can see our conscience to the point where we don't think many things are wrong and sinful. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul is speaking about an understanding of the full extent and depravity of man's sin. And I've heard it explained uh, this way, this illustration used when, when um, trying to explain how the law reveals sin. A man gets called into the doctor's office, and the man has, or the doctor has the unfortunate task of informing the man that he has terminal cancer. And the man, of course, is shocked and saddened. But did the doctor create the cancer? No, 
course not. He didn't create the cancer. He informed the man about it. And so the law did not create sin in us. Rather, the law informs us of the presence of that sin. The law is the messenger. And so Paul is saying, don't shoot the messenger. The law is not the problem. The law is not sinful. The law informs us of where the problem is. And from here, Paul uses the 10th commandment as an example. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. So why do you think Paul chose the 10th commandment out of all the 10 commandments? Why did he choose that one to use as an example? It's very interesting. Out of all the commandments, the 10th commandment, the sin of covetousness is the most internal of sins. It's an inward attitude, not an outward action. But covetousness leads to the breaking of other commandments to other sins. And so Paul drills down to the heart issue and helps us realize that the most important commands of God's law were not external, but internal, and that he had failed to follow them, and so do we. We all know this, don't we? We all know the personal battle, the struggle with sin in our lives that starts with our hearts, it starts with our minds, and it leads to other things. Jesus addressed this as well. As we've been doing our same-page summers, we were reading through the book of Matthew. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful what? Intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In his heart. The fact that sin is first an internal battle that stems from the heart, it really shows us that how lost we are and how hopeless we are without the power of the Holy Spirit. We have no hope over sin without him. We must be transformed. We must be regenerated. We must be given a new nature, a new life. And it's the law that plays a part in that, in that transformation to make a person aware of his sin and his need for forgiveness. What does the world offer? The world offers behavior modification, right? You see this with Alcoholics Anonymous. You see this with therapists, with psychologists. And they can do an okay job. If you go to AA, if you go to therapists and psychologists, you can probably work hard and you can probably stop drinking or you could probably stop lying or something else. But there's no heart change. No heart change at all. It's just a matter of your own willpower. And no amount of therapy sessions can take a heart and make it pure and acceptable to God. You can go to therapy the rest of your life and you will not have a heart change. But if we even look at this, they actually don't promise that much. If you just look at Alcoholics Anonymous for a moment, you go in as an alcoholic, you work really hard, you do the law, you work the law, you do the works. At the end, You come out, you finish all the 12 steps, you get up and you introduce yourself and you say, hi, my name is, and I am an alcoholic. And for the rest of your life, you are not free from alcoholism, you are a recovering alcoholic, right? So even in the terminology, it shows that there's no real freedom from that. And it's only through Christ that can can give us that heart change where we can truly be free from sins in this example. But finally, on this thought of internal sin, the Jews, even though they had turned God's law into a legalistic system of outward actions, they knew that the heart of God, the heart of God's law dealt with inner motives rather than the external. How did Jesus sum up all of the commandments? 
Well, he recited Deuteronomy 6.5, and you know it. Love the Lord your God with all your what? And your? And your? And your? Sometimes soul, people say soul too. There's actually only three. but uh, And then the second commandment is like it, right? You shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? The two greatest commands had to do with the conditions of one's heart, and yet they continue to place their faith, the Jewish people did, in their own outward achievements rather than in the God they profess to love. So first, the law reveals sin. Secondly, the law provokes sin. It provokes sin. Look at verse 8 with me. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. And we see here again that it's clearly that it's not the law that has the problem, but it's sin that's already in a person's heart that is to blame. There's a theologian and professor named F.F. Bruce. He was well-known, and he was from from England, and he was most well-known for defending the reliability of the New Testament and of the Bible. But he said this on this section. He said, The villain of the piece is sin. Sin seized the opportunity afforded it when the law showed me what was right and what was wrong. Sin is the villain. And in Galatians 3.21, Paul again refers to this. He says, is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. May it never be. No. The problem is with sin, not with the law. And this word opportunity here, it's the Greek word aphorme. And it refers to a starting point or base of operations during a war. So what it's saying is that sin used the law as a base of operations to launch its attack. Sin used the law. And as we'll see in a moment, sin used something that was holy and righteous and good to bring about death. And as I was thinking about this, I was blown away, by, blown away by the power of sin. Sin is so powerful, so wicked, it can use something that is good like the law and holy and just to bring about death. Wow. Paul says that it produced in him all kinds of covetousness. And there's other translations say all manner of evil desires. And that explains it well, because if you covet during th- covet different things that leads to all sorts of evil desires and actions. The King James Version, it uses a word that I had to look up, concupiscence. Have you heard that word? Concupiscence in the King James. That refers to lusting and desiring things that are specifically forbidden, especially in the area of sexual sin. And it's no secret, and it's something that we've talked about before in our study, uh, that Our fallen nature wants to do those things that are forbidden. As soon as we find out that something is wrong, we all of a sudden have a desire to go explore that. The forbidden thing becomes all the more attractive. And it's not that the forbidden thing is really that good in itself. It's not, of course. But it's our sinful nature designed to be rebellious. We want to be rebellious. We want to go against what we know is right. There's a great illustration in the book of Pilgrim's Progress. Have you read Pilgrim's Progress? If you haven't, I encourage you to. Uh, John Bunyan, he paints this amazing word picture of how the law provokes sin. Of course, the main character in the book is a man called Christian. And Christian meets another man called Interpreter. And Interpreter invites Christian over into a house. And he invites him into a large, dust-covered room. And that room symbolizes the human heart. 
And while they're in there, a man walks into the room with a broom. And the broom represents God's law. And he starts sweeping. Well, what do you think happened? His sweeping stirs up all the dust in the room, and it almost suffocates Christian. And it's only until a girl comes into the room with water, and she sprinkles water around the room, and the water represents the gospel. It's only then can the room be swept clean. This is what the law does to sin. It agitates it and stirs it up, that it becomes so hard to breathe. And just as a broom cannot clean a room of dust but just stir it up, so the law cannot cleanse the heart of sin but only make the sin more evident and more unpleasant. Love that illustration. When Paul says here, uh, for apart from the law, sin lies dead, uh, his point is, is that sin is dead in the sense that it is somewhat dormant and not fully active. It does not overwhelm the sinner until the law becomes known. And you've probably seen this in your own life as well. When the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to the truth of God's word and how you had offended a holy God, you saw your sin in a new way. You saw how horrible it was, how God cannot stand sin in his presence, and you reached out in faith to Christ. And even as you're growing in your faith, when you fall in to different sins that you've struggled with in the past, how much more do you hate it? How much more do you want to grow? We understand our knowledge of sin grows. So we don't fully understand that, though, until the law becomes known. And so just as a broom stirs up a dusty room, we see how the law provokes sin. Well, next in verses 9 through 11, we see that the law crushes the sinner. Look at verse 9 with me. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law not only reveals and provokes sin, but it also crushes and destroys the sinner. And Paul, once again, he's referring to his own experience and says that he was once alive apart from the law. And of course, that does not mean that Paul did not know God's law. Of course he knew it. He knew it very well. As a self-righteous Pharisee, he considered himself to be an expert in the law. He considered himself to be blameless according to the law. We see that in Philippians 3.6. But through all the years of self-effort, he was describing himself in reference to verse 6. If you look back last week, how we ended, uh, that Paul was serving not in the new way of the Spirit, but he was serving in the old way of the written code, in the old way of the written code. But when the Holy Spirit opened his eyes to a true understanding of the commandment, he began to see himself as he really was, and he understood how much he had fallen short. His sin then became alive and he realized his standing before God. His true condition became known, and he died. He died in a sense that he realized that all his works were garbage. And he speaks of this in Philippians 3, verse 7 through 9. Look what he says. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
You see the transformation there? How amazing is that description? He realized that he was spiritually dead. And it was in that moment that he could join with the repentant tax collector and see God be merciful to me, a sinner. He recognized his, his depravity and the hopelessness, and yet that Christ had died for him. And there's a note for us. There's an application point here in how we share the gospel. May we have a proper balance of explaining how we fall short of God's law combined with his great love and grace provided in the perfect law keeper of Jesus Christ. So often we want to begin with the good news, don't we? God loves you. That's often one of the first things we want to say. God loves you. But we, don't need to, we shouldn't begin there. We need to begin there with God as creator, that God is holy, clearly explaining how we are separated from him because of our sin. And once the problem has been explained, then we can move to God's great love and redemption that's available through Christ. Of course, we know we are not called to give people a self-esteem message so that they'll feel good about themselves. The world does that well enough, doesn't it? They have the world telling them that all the time and leading them on a road to hell. And just the opposite. We let the law of God slay the sinner, with conviction of sin and guilt and judgment. And then from there, it's the Holy Spirit's work. Remember, remember, what's one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit came into the world to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's John chapter 16. The Holy Spirit was not sent into the world to tell everyone how great they are and how they're all right. Not at all. It's the exact opposite, to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And even our Lord Jesus says in John 15, 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for sin. And, they, and if they hate me for it, they hate me because they hate my father. And they may hate you. And they may hate me. John MacArthur says that they didn't kill Jesus because they didn't want heaven. They didn't kill him because they didn't want to be blessed. They didn't kill him because they didn't want the kingdom of God. No, they wanted all of those things. They killed him not because of the cure, but because of the diagnosis. They hated him because he showed them their sin, and they refused to see it. That's why they hated Jesus. That's why they will hate us if we are loving enough and bold enough to share truth in a loving way of their sin. We have to go there first. That's our application point for us as we share the gospel. But Paul continues in verse 10. He says, The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. So this is interesting. God gave the law to provide a blessing for those who love and serve him. We see this in Psalm 119, the first two verses. It says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. That's for the believer. But the law cannot bring peace and life and blessing to the unbeliever because the unbeliever cannot come close to fulfilling the law's requirements. Before Christ, we were under the sentence of death. If it were possible, perfect obedience to the law could bring life. But because perfect obedience is not at all possible, the law brings death rather than life. And we will see in Romans 8, when we get there, that for believers, the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us. That's an amazing truth. 
who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. How in the world is that possible? Well, Paul answers it further down in the chapter. He says, it's because Christ himself dwells in us through his own spirit, and our spirit is alive because of his righteousness. What an amazing change that is. Glorious truth. Well, in verse 11, Paul repeats that same phrase. He says, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. But this time, he had something different. He says that the law deceived me, and through it killed me. How did the law, or sin, sorry, how did sin deceive Paul? Well, by convincing him that Paul's self-righteousness was sufficient to please God. A person who is deceived will see no need for salvation, will see no need for coming to Christ. And all false religions, including some who name the name of Jesus, in one way or another are built on the foundation of self-righteous works. It's very deceptive. And this is not righteousness at all, but it's actually among the worst of sins. It's an oxymoron. It's a self-contradiction. If you hold it up to the standard of the law and to the standard of grace, you see it for what it really is. We have no righteousness when it comes to the law. We have no righteousness when it comes to grace because grace is a gift that's been given to us outside of any type of righteousness. The law brings death. The law crushes the sinner. But finally, we see that the law shows the sinfulness of sin. Look at verse 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. And so Paul again answers this question, is the law sin? No, not at all. On the contrary, the law is holy, righteous, and good. And for the remainder of the chapter, if you continue reading, you'll see that Paul refers to the law as good. He refers to it as spiritual. He refers to it as something that he delights in. In fact, turn to Psalm 19. I just want you to see this. Psalm 19, and we'll see David worshiping the Lord and giving him glory for the law, how good the law is. Psalm 19, we're going to start in verse 7. The law of the Lord, David says, is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. What a beautiful description of the goodness of God's law from David. Although the law reveals, provokes, condemns sin in the sinner, it in no way makes the law itself evil. And we can look at it from the example or illustration of a criminal. Let's look at a murderer. When a criminal is justly convicted of murder, there is no fault in the law. All the fault is in the person who broke the law. In verse 13, Paul once again anticipates the question that arises from what he is saying. Look at verse 13, the beginning. He says, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. Does the law bring death? No. 
And to continue with the example of the murder, it is not the law against murder, but committing the murder that brings punishment. The law is good. It's the breaking of the law that is sinful and will result in punishment. And if we take it back to our spiritual life, it is not the law that sentences us to spiritual death. It is our sin that does that. And verse verse 13 goes on. He says, It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. So sin's deathly character is exposed through the pure light of God's law. Friends, we live in a time, don't we, where the word sin is seldom used. Seldom used. And unfortunately, in many churches as well, very seldom used. It's been dumbed down. It's been replaced with words like mistake or brokenness or indiscretion. Brothers and sisters, we should never wink at or try and excuse something that God condemns. We should never do that. We need to call sin for what it is and be faithful to his word in that. And it's only when we realize how grievous our sin really is that we will understand the great grace that has been shown to us in Christ. And Paul's point here when he says that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure, that's to show us that sin is absolutely sinful, that it can even pervert and undermine the purpose of God's holy law. It can twist and distort it so that instead of bringing life as God intended, it brings death. That is the awful wretchedness of sin. And yet, even though sin distorts, God's purposes still shine through. They do. Nothing will stop him from saving those he has called. And we've already referred to Galatians 3 today, but here's verse 22 for you. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So the ultimate purpose of the law was to drive people to faith in Jesus Christ, who fulfilled the demands of the law on behalf of sinners who trust in his righteousness and not in their own. And that's our prayer for you this morning, that your eyes will be opened to your own sin and be driven to Christ for salvation. The law is not the problem. Your sin is. The law is a mirror to show you how dirty you are. And it can't remove that dirt, but God has provided someone who can. And actually, we just sang about it. There is a fountain. In fact, why don't we just sing this verse again together? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains lose all their guilty stains lose all their guilty stains and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains amen 
Well, after salvation, we, of course, are still in need of God's law to direct our lives and to continue to show us God's standard and also to show us the blessing, the full blessing that belongs to us as his children. And we look at it differently, though, because then we can truly echo with the psalmist, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. But when we do sin, we have an advocate, the one who is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In two weeks, we're going to continue in Romans 7. Next week, we're going to have a guest speaker. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and, but in two weeks, we're going to have a part two of the law, sin, and the believer. But next time, we'll be looking at the ongoing struggle that we have with sin. And yet, ultimately, finding our victory in Christ. We always go to the gospel, friends. That's where we always want to go. We don't want to leave you without hope. We always go to the work of Christ here at Shoreline. Uh, also, next Sunday is the first Sunday of the month. We're going to be having communion together. We're going to be coming to the Lord's table. And so I just encourage you uh, this week that you'd be coming to the Lord in an attitude of repentance. If there are sins and struggles in your life that you need to confess to the Lord, please do that. If there are sins uh, and difficulties that you have with other members in this body, please do that. Please go to them. Confess your sins to one another uh, before you come to the table next Sunday. Well, as we close, I want to share with you a poem uh, written by Robert Murray McShane. Uh, he was a minister in the Church of Scotland in the 1800s. He died very early. He died at the age of 29 uh, from typhus. But although he lived a short life, he had a massive, massive impact as a pastor, a preacher, a poet, and a hymn writer. And this beautiful poem speaks to the conviction of sin uh, and the joy that comes from knowing Christ is our righteousness. And that's what it's called. It's entitled Jehovah Tzidkenu, which means in Hebrew, the Lord our righteousness. I was once a stranger to grace and to God. I knew not my danger and felt not my load. Though friends spoke in rapture of Christ on the tree, Jehovah Tzitkanu was nothing to me. I oft read with pleasure to soothe or engage Isaiah's wild measure in John's simple page. But even when they pictured that blood-sprinkled tree, Jehovah Tzitkanu seemed nothing to me. Like tears from the daughters of Zion that roll, I wept when the waters went over his soul. Yet thought not that my sins had nailed to the tree. Jehovah Tzikinu was nothing to me. When free grace awoke me by light from on high, then legal fears, it's talking about the law, then the law shook me, I trembled to die. No refuge, no safety in self could I see. Jehovah Tzikinu, my savior, must be. My terrors all vanished before the sweet name. My guilty fears banished. With boldness I came to drink at the fountain, life-giving and free. Jehovah Tzikindu is all things to me. Jehovah Tzikindu, my treasure and boast. Jehovah Tzikindu, I ne'er can be lost. In thee I shall conquer by flood and by field, my cable, my anchor, my breastplate and shield. Even treading the valley, the shadow of death, this watchword shall rally my faltering breath. For while from life's fever my God sets me free, Jehovah Tzikindu, my death song shall be. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your inerrant, infallible word this morning. Thank you 
Holy Spirit, for opening our eyes to our true state before you, that we have transgressed your holy law in multiple, multiple areas, Lord, and we are guilty of all of it. Thank you for opening our eyes to the depth and depravity of our sin, but at the same time, showing the love and grace that you have to us by sending your sinless son to come and live that perfect life, to keep every law perfectly, and yet to go to the cross on our behalf, to, to hang in our place, to take our sins, all of our sins, past, present, and future, upon yourself. Lord, we come to you with reverence and humility this morning, Lord, knowing that we deserve not our salvation, and yet you have freely chosen to extend your grace to us. And so we worship you this morning as a perfect lawgiver, and we worship you this morning as our advocates. And though, although we've made known the seriousness, the sinfulness of sin, we also know that we still, even though we are now in Christ, we still cannot perfectly keep that law, that we sin often. So Lord, we thank you that you've provided an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous, that is there interceding on our behalf. We can come to him. The veil has been torn. We can come anytime, any place. He is there ready and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. Lord, we thank you for our church. We thank you the privilege we have to open your word this morning. May it guide and direct us today through the rest of this week. And Lord, now we stand and we worship you that it is not in us, but it's only in Christ that we have freedom. And it's in the name of Christ that we started this morning, and it's the name of Christ that we end this portion, this sermon. In his name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.